0: I guess I want to first say I, I see that too, right? Like I see I see what it is to live in a world where you want it to be easier, you want it to to go away if you don't look at it. I understand the charms of the that magical thinking, and I also understand the pain of looking at it. I understand when you start to unpack what it is to really look at whiteness. I think you have to go into dark places. You have to feel ashamed. You have to feel grief. You have to feel culpable. And so those feelings are not fun, right? Like those are not fun. And, and I guess I want to say that every time a white person turns away from those feelings, that's white privilege because we can. And if we say we don't want it, we say we want a just world. And we have to notice when we're being unjust, that's not, that's an unjust move. That is a, a move that says, I'm going to use this thing I didn't earn. And I'm going to take the easy road because I can.
1: Today's episode is a very special one. We are right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, with protests happening in every, on every single continent all around the world. And an article popped up on my LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. And it's by today's guest. And it flashed up and it said, confronting my white privilege, which piqued my curiosity I wanted to know what this white, Harvard-educated, Harvard professor had to say on the topic of race. And I was not expecting it. It was a very open, raw, vulnerable piece, where she talked about white shame, white fear, white fragility, and it was someone who had done the work and was doing some more work on herself, someone who realised there was a need to change and shift and she was making plans to do that within her organisation and someone who was saying that you know what I don't have all the answers but I know I can't stay silent that's worse. It's someone who even from her article that was open I knew was an ally straight away and so I reached out to her and invited her to come on the podcast and she said yes to my surprise. And we have a great conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Like, subscribe, share. Let me know what you think about it. I have um, the author, the CEO of Cultivating Leadership, um, coach, thought leader, Jennifer Garverberger, with me. How are you doing, Jennifer?
0: I'm doing super well. Thank you.
1: Um, it's a wonderful pleasure to have you on. I have read some of your books. I've obviously we working in the same field. I've to some of your interviews. And in particular, the last week or so, I think it was a couple of days ago, you wrote your article, Conferencing My White Privilege. And it was a very open, raw, vulnerable piece, to be honest. And um, as I read and I started going through, I was like, I just, I really wanted to talk to you more about it. Because one thing I've said in this period has been people who have stayed silent and stayed quiet you can't really have a conversation with them, but people who are willing to actually confront what is going on head on and be like, actually, I might not have the right words to say, but I'm willing to have a conversation around it. And I've looked into it myself. Those kind of people I definitely want to talk talk about and talk to. And you're one of those people. And I was just reading from the first paragraph <laughs> in your article when you talked about... Um, 2016, when you were in New York with your son. As I just talked about your son was running through um, New York and you you back to say the fact that if he was black, he wouldn't be able to do that because people's expressions will be very different if it was a young black kid running through. What made your mind go to that? Because it just seemed to come out, completely come out of the blue when I was reading that.
0: It came out of the blue for me. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was a minority kid in my schools. I grew up, I went to mostly black schools. It's not like I hadn't thought about race before. And as a professor, I had taught about white privilege, but there was something in that, like that moment I cannot tell you how powerful that moment was for me. I watched my, you know, he's a teenager. He's running through these city streets. People are kind of smiling at him. And I had like the sense of joy. He has his own agencies, like running through a city. Like it's such a beautiful thing. It's about this hobby that he loves so much, this kind of quirky film photography hobby he had that he loves so much. And it was as if you dipped me in ice water when I realized this thing that I'm feeling, that's called. White privilege. Because if this kid were black or brown, then he would be in danger right now, running happily through the street he would be in danger right now. And um, it makes my eyes fill with tears even now. When I when I caught up to him, I was in tears. And he was like, what happened to you? You know, like, because literally nothing had happened. Nobody said anything, nobody didn't, like nothing had happened. But I obviously cannot shake that feeling of, um, I think I, I totally knew in my head before that moving through my life, the way I moved through my life, um, was always, always dipped in my privilege. But in that moment, I understood that it was, a, it was so much bigger than I had ever known.
1: Around that same period, like July, 2016 was around, the, um, Anton Sterling, Fanny Castro Castillo period as well, when this happened, last time as well so yeah I can imagine yeah and between then you talked about the fact that you you felt that emotion inside of you but you struggled to talk about it and to express it how come
0: so I I I think words fail me right like I tried to write about it I tried to um you know because I'm a writer I tried to write about it and everything I wrote was either it somehow just couldn't get across the emotional experience because I I don't want to look like I know what Mm. the black mother's emotional experience is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I didn't want to look like arrogant, like, Oh, now I know a thing. Um, and at the same time, it was such a powerful physical and emotional experience. It was like, I, getting that power in without making it look like, oh, now I know something that I couldn't possibly know. That I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And then I have this voice in me that says, like, what right have you to talk about this? This is not for you to talk about. You you should listen in this space, like in the space of race, listen, like don't say. Yeah, so I stopped.
1: And why? why now? Four years later... You just completely let it all out. Obviously, what's happened with with COVID, and now what's happening um, with George Floyd, and the last um, couple of weeks with the riots, the protests, everyone's speaking up now. So, why? What has changed in those four years for you?
0: I think the thing that I got these last weeks is that silence is its own kind of violence, right? That that not speaking. I had been doing things quietly, right? Like I had been working in my own way, caring deeply about these issues, but quietly. So as not to say like, Hey, look at me. I'm working on these issues. Like it felt like there was something kind of attention seeking about that for me. And that's like, that's my stuff. I feel attention seeking whenever I say anything publicly. So like we could talk about my childhood and, but it was the, it, it was the realization that all voices are needed on this issue, that all of us, all of us, all of us need to be paying attention and, um, paying attention privately, quietly is just another form of white privilege. It's just, it's just another form.
1: Mm. When you talk about white privilege to you, what does, what does that mean?
0: I think it's all the, all of the stuff that happens to me that makes my life easier because I had white parents. I was born with this color skin all all of the times that I don't look around a room and think I'm the only one of my kind here. You know, all the times where I don't wonder whether this or that is happening to me because of my race, like all those times. And now I understand all the ways I feel about letting my son go out at night in London, you know, letting him hang out with his friends, Um, you know, all that, all of it.
1: Looking at your one thing you talked about was your organization. So, obviously, you've from educational perspective, you've felt the emotion that you felt those years ago from right now, for example, but yet your organization hasn't necessarily reflected your, your chain of thoughts. So, and obviously, there are a lot of organizations who are like that, most of them are like that right by now. So, I wanted to kind of understand one, how is it possible that that's kind of happen from your perspective and then going forward in the future what are you thinking about obviously you started to make some changes now but even you can talk about that a bit more as well
0: yeah so it's the thing we've been talking about for years mm-hmm. again talking mm-hmm. um it's the thing we've been talking about for years and trying to figure out how do we recruit people in to our organization people of color into our organization and the the way Our organization works is um, generally we come across someone, uh, they take a program from us, they're another consultant working at a client. You know, I run a leadership development firm. And so everybody in the firm, we sort of have happened upon, right, in some way or another. And um, we've had this mission um, to diversify for years. And the thing is, we just don't happen upon. Right, like, like again, is that there's a kind of a passive awareness, watchfulness, desire thing that has not been working. It's just not been working. There aren't very many people of color in the field in general, and the ones that we know have been most of the most of the ones we've come across are like employed by the the organizations we serve, and so they've been kind of off base. We don't. Have, poach people from organizations, right? Like that doesn't doesn't make you popular. And also, why would they want to come and work for us when they are working for, you know, some big fancy company? So we just have not, we have not happened upon um, people of color who were looking for uh, um, the sort of organization we are. And uh, they say Insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results, right? And so I guess we were insane for the last few years is we've been really trying to work on this as an issue. And so this year we said, okay, let's not happen upon, let's say people of color can just take our programs for free because this is what, um, this is where we meet people who come into our organization. Like this is kind of the, the gathering place, the watering hole where we bump into people, we meet them, we know them. Okay. If we really want this, like, let's change the people who come to our programs. And we tried to do that with recruiting and reaching out to people and saying, Hey, if you'd ever want to come to our program, blah, blah, blah there'll be a discount, blah. Like we'd done all those things and it hadn't worked. So now we're like, okay, forget it's just free. Like it's just free. Just come, just come. Can we just come, just come? We want to learn from you. We want to learn with you. We want to get to know you like, just come. And so, um, a lot of people
1: are coming. That's good. That's It's it's definitely needed. I mean, I've been to um, events, like I said, working at leadership culture as well. I've been to events where you walk into the room and you look around you and it's just, that's went to rent one last year and literally I was just the only black person there. And my first instinct was just to walk back out. I was like, I just didn't feel invited into that room, into that space. And it just felt a bit like, they don't really want me here. Yeah. I know I need to be there because I paid to be there, but they don't really want me here because there's nothing and no one around me that I can automatically feel any bond or any resemblance whatsoever to. And it felt really, really awkward to be honest. Yeah. So it's it's brilliant to actually hear that you actually opening up and like you know what, just just come in and we're going to see what happens from there. Just
0: come in. We're trying, like we're trying to figure it out together, right? We're trying. If we care about changing the field, changing the world, changing what's possible. We're going to make a hundred million mistakes, but let's—it's better to make the mistakes than mm. to, to not. This is where this is where we
1: are. And when it comes to having difficult, tough, uncomfortable conversations like like this around race, for example, what have you done personally, and then obviously with your circles and the people that you serve? Have you had those kind of conversations with them as well? Because you're very very good at, um, when you talk about listening, you are great at listening. <laughs> Everyone in the interview, that listen to you talking about, you're really, really great at listening and just letting people talk and lay it all out. So for you, how has that actually happened with in regards to talking about race, talking about your fears and communicating?
0: So as a leadership team, we've talked about it. And we, uh, several years ago, we tried to partner we tried for a while to partner with a, a firm that was like ours, but aimed at social justice, okay. and um, and they were mostly it was just super diverse, super diverse um, organization, and ultimately, and and we created action learning groups with them and big conversations with them. And ultimately they kind of decided we were just too white for them and uh, they don't want to work with us anymore. And there was lots of other stuff going on in that organization and their mission changed and their name changed and their leadership changed. Like, lots of stuff was happening, but they, they were sort of like, we, we don't have time to educate you. Like we have a big mission. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to educate. You. So what have we been doing? We've been having that conversation. We've just started a series of conversations in the firm about these ideas And they're beautiful and they're hard and, uh, and we're, we're also very global and the, the experience of race and racism is just different in different parts of the world, right? Like it's a, there's, there's racism everywhere you look. Um, but the, the way it lives is different in Lebanon than it is in, um, Denmark than it is in New Zealand, right? Like, than it is in the US, than it is in England. Uh, So, people are trying to get their heads around the cultural differences, plus the race differences, plus the gender differences. We're obviously a, a woman led firm. And so, we've had these conversations about genders. People are trying to make their way into that kind of understanding. I'm much happier to listen than to say. By and large, like I, and the whole thing makes my uh, difficult conversations in general, which I teach how to have, well, um, make my palms sweat. They um, they make my mouth dry. You know, they make my heart. Yeah. So I sit with that discomfort, um, which is like what tiny fraction of, would that be compared to the discomfort you had when you walked into that room of all white coaches? Right. So this is the thing that sort of is pushing me on now is to just understand that everything I experience is a drop in an ocean, um, compared to what people who are really suffering in this space have experienced.
1: And I think that's, um, that I actually got from just reading your, um, your blog post anyway, and obviously having this conversation as well. And I think that also, is another level around the whole understanding piece, which we're going to come back to in a minute, because it just shows that you are actually... Obviously, you can't... It's not your lived experience, but you are taking the time to really listen, actively listen, which obviously we know the difference is that you're actually taking on board, you're listening, you're reflecting, and saying, actually... I can try and put myself in that person's shoes and actually here's what I get. So imagine if I was really in their shoes, here's what it's going to feel like. So that's um, really, really good to hear. And one thing that you touched on is the organization you previously worked with, they, they felt it was in your their place to educate you. Um, how do you feel about that when it comes to the education piece, do you understand the reason why people are actually saying, like, you know, it's not my place to educate or people when it comes to race? And then it's do that work first. And then we can have a conversation around it. Or how do you feel about that?
0: Oh, my goodness. This has actually been one of our hurdles. I understand that too well. Um, there's a way that that idea, Somebody call, on our conversation on race this week, somebody called me on that as like a blind spot of mine that I that I like try to go off and do my work over here and not bother other people and like not disturb them. And um, Akasha, who's a uh, who's co holding the space with me, he's an Afro Caribbean man, and we were co hosting this conversation on race together, and he said when when you say, you don't want to bother me with that. It makes me feel like you don't believe I'm strong enough to handle it. Mm. And, uh, and you don't believe I'm strong enough to say no to you. And so, um, I don't, I don't need you to protect me from this. And then I was like, now I don't know what to do. Right. Like on, on the one hand, I don't want to say, help me. I need you. Right. Like, devote your time to me, school me. Cause I need this. Cause I can't understand your experience unless you talk to me. So I don't want to say that. And at the same time, when I don't say that, I can see that that's like removes from him, the agency of having the conversation or not as he wishes. So once again, it's about like asking and then taking no gracefully, right? Like, like asking, would you like to have this conversation? And if somebody says no, then uh, asking again and not having that lead me to think oh people don't want to talk about this therefore i won't ask again right like people have days they have weeks they have months they have years when they might or might not want to talk about things and that doesn't mean that the time won't come
1: that's so true so don't be afraid to keep on asking because like I said there'll be times and periods where you don't want to talk about it but the times where you do want to talk about it but the fact that you keep on asking and you're still doing the work behind the scenes as well just needs to know that that person knows that you're there and you're doing the right thing and that's so critical it's so important
0: this is like very contrary to my psychology where you know if if you don't want to talk about something Mm -hmm. like I have a lot of receptors in me to like pull back from that right as somebody who's just because of the way I grew up and the you know like the sort of peacekeeper I was with as a little kid with divorcing parents you know like in that space yeah and so I have to constantly fight that reflex to constantly be pushing against just put it out just put it Mm
1: -hmm. out very good when it comes to um talking about anti-racism and allyship to you what does that look like within your organization but also on the wider the wider scale in the wider world because obviously you're bigger than just your organization as an individual so
0: i think i'm still figuring that out like i i have ideas about it that are in motion right like how do i how do i make spaces that are more comfortable how do i make um make the possibility for conversations in a new way how do how do we intentionally just keep working to shift this experience you had of walking into that room? How do we make sure that this is a thing that we talk about, that we are acting on? Like, I, I have, we're running experiments. I have questions about that. And it might take me the rest of my life to really figure it out. Maybe, it, maybe it's not figure outable, you know, maybe it, it, it's, it's like a, a quest that is itself worthy. Mm. How do you think about it? How do you think about it as we're having this conversation
1: it's for me, it's about action. It's about action over over words. I think that for me shows that someone really is um an ally mm. when it comes to anti racism. It's not staying silent. it's actually talking about it. For one, for me, that's like yeah, you definitely understand why that why you need to do that, and then you start by you doing that, you're shining a spotlight on what the problem actually is so that people are realized about it and they can start doing some work on it. And that's where the allyship comes in. Because for me, it's like you said at the start, it's uh, when it comes to privilege and the racial structure that's been built up and it's something that, that was created by us. So it's something that needs to be, in a sense, dismantled and broken down by those who are actually in that space. And therefore, they need to understand the power and the privilege that they have, which we've talked about, and then start using that to actually help shift things by working together. Yeah. So no one is literally just working side by side together and having that equality and fairness and just seeing us together and then moving forward. That's how things are going to start to shift and change. So I've been very much focused on a lot of the, for example, other companies that made their statements And then you start delving behind the scenes Like actually statements are great, but behind the scenes, behind your leadership, behind the way your company operates, they're just words. So you need some actual tangible steps and tangible actions behind them. And then people can buy into that and people can start to believe that actually there is something different about right now.
0: Yeah. This move to action, move from words and move from intention Uh and like working on myself. And, and working on my intentions, working on my, my sort of cognitive biases i have been like doing that work, you know, like I'm over here, I'm doing my work and it's just, it's not like, that's outrageously slow. Like, what is that? Like, I, like, that's great. Like, I think, you know, I, I don't feel sad that I've been working on it and doing my work. Um, and at the same time this is not going to change you know <laughs> systemic racism right it's like how do we how do, how do we create opportunities this this idea of of asking people of color to come into our program for free right like this is a really that's to change who who we are together Right. It's, it's so that like, we didn't offer four scholarships or five scholarships. We said like, let's see if we can get 30 people, you know, and in a class that was like, like 80 people, 30 people is a lot of people. Right. Um, You know, let's see if we can get a bunch of people in the room so that when they come onto zoom, you know, they're going to see a lot of faces that look familiar to them. They're going to, they're going to see, you're going to be able to walk into a breakout room and even if we do the breakout rooms randomly, they're going to be able to see faces that look like them. We're asking questions like, hey, do you want us to do the breakout rooms randomly? Or would you like to be with other coaches of color in your breakout room? Would you like us? We're asking questions like, you know, we have a little mentoring program in there. We're asking questions like, would you rather be mentored in a trio of color and with a coach of color? Like, asking those questions. If everybody says yes, we don't have, we don't have that many coaches of color who mentor, right? So we're going to have to figure that out. Like it's about figuring it out. And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they say no, and we're just starting, but I, I, I feel like we're in this turbocharged learning space. So we're at least starting to take action that will then lead to mistakes, which will lead to learning, which will lead to action. And we are trying to be like very, very open to getting it wrong, to being told that we've gotten it wrong, to learning how to get it less wrong next time. Like this is this is our, our mission is getting it less wrong next time. This is what we're trying to do.
1: Mm-hmm. What would you say to organizations and people who are struggling to get into that space of, let's just, we, we're going to get it wrong. We know we're going to get it wrong, but we're willing to try because this is so important and something needs to change
0: for us we've been really looking at what's our identity like what's me what's my identity as somebody who doesn't um like wander into a place where I'm hurting people or making terrible mistakes where people are going to give me like negative feedback and say, you're doing this badly. Like this, this piece that you read, I must've written 20 drafts of that piece. And I would send it out. People would send it back and say, you can't say this. You can't say this. You can't say this. And everybody would say that about some other part of it. And, you know, talking to myself about, so how, how hard is this for you compared to how hard it is for those other moms, right? Like, really that's the comparison. Like you think it's hard? It's not hard. It's not hard. This is this is like this is like putting some of my identity on the line. It's like putting some of my preferences on the line. It's putting my desire to create you know beautiful spaces for people to come to and not wanting people to come to the spaces unless they're beautiful. That's that's like me. That's my ego that we're talking about. And so how do we do I look at that and say thank you to my ego thank you like you've really helped me we've created a lot of beautiful places you know many good things have come out of this and right now you are in the way right now you are are not helping me do this hard thing that's on my edge and so I'm gonna I'm gonna need to push ahead
1: one of the um things you've talked about previously part of your adult development model has been that self-transforming and i was thinking about that and thinking about race
0: mm.
1: and how there's they kind of go hand in hand mm. so um, i was going to ask you can you expand on what self-transforming is and then from your perspective how does that actually apply to race and actually making a change to move things forward
0: yeah so so as we grow and change over time sometimes rarely but sometimes people come into this place that most traditions would have named wisdom, right? Like most ancient traditions have always had this idea of a, um, a moment where it's no longer about you and your ideas, but it's about what can we weave together from the collective, right? What, What can we, how are we together making each other up and how can that making each other up lead to something that's never been before, right? And... One of the core pieces of it is to be able to notice yourself, notice where you're getting in your way and, and notice, notice across differences, across these divides that used to feel like this is the stuff that's me. And this is the stuff that's you that actually that's much more connected much more of a, a single piece than these two totally separate pieces. And that there's some of me in you and there's some of you in me. And this question about how do we then take that and create something new? And your question about race is, you require diversity to to grow to that place. You require different perspectives. You require things that pull you outside yourself and offer you new ways of being, new ways of seeing the world, new ways of experiencing the world. And without that, you can't grow. Like, you can't grow. And and it's one of the things about adult development is that that developmental space wasn't even that important in a world that was much simpler, where people mostly stayed with their own kind, you know, where you learned your profession at the feet of your father, and then that was your profession, It was your grandfather's profession. You stayed in your same village, and you mostly had people that your family had been around for generations. Like, Like, we both couldn't develop, and we also didn't need to that much. And now, you look at this world, if we can't take each other's perspectives, or at least try, if we can't build things together... I I sometimes think about what it means, what the world has lost. Like this is, this is not thinking about, I think a lot about the individual pain of systemic racism, but I think about what the world has lost in terms of the science that didn't happen, right? The poetry that didn't get written, the art that didn't get made, the music that didn't happen. Like, obviously it takes my breath away, it takes my breath away. What we, what we have lost as a, as a human race, because we've let this thing divide us and people with power have taken advantage of their power and crippled us all in a way.
1: Mm. I think that's when they talk about um, race and power, it's always a very interesting one because I think that's what it is. It's about shifting that power and things have been done for such a long time. It's kind of hard to start to change that and for people to actually get their mind around the fact that they have to actually let go of some of that power to get that diversity. But then the flip side of that is exactly what you just talked about. Well, actually, if you let go of some of that power and you get that diversity in there, you get a much better world. You get a much... Be able to full world with so much imagination that can be released and so many things that we haven't thought about can be created. But that will only happen if you step into that self-transformation and be like, actually, something does really really need to change, something really needs to shift. And that's going to mean me losing something that I might not have thought about before, but I need to think about. Let's drive that chain forward. Yeah.
0: every What adult development teaches us is that every step farther into our development is is to lose something. We always have to lose something. We always have to give something up. And the thing that comes is a bigger space. I mean, you see it. We had, I live in central London, and we had an anti-Black Lives Matter protest last week. Like, it just blows my mind, Right blows my mind. And so you, and, and what you see is like, these people are terrified, right? They're, they're looking at what they might lose and they're terrified. And so, and it makes them angry and it makes them afraid and it makes them violent and it makes them terrifying. It's like, how do we breathe into the space that says there is no progress without losing something that you had? Those people who have been clinging on, there's a better world ahead. It's like, Development teaches us that you put down what you have, and then something more wonderful emerges. Mm. Um, but that is isn't that is an act of trust and faith, and this is not a world overflowing with trust and
1: faith. Mm. It is, and it isn't, though, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. That's why you get, you get the you get the mixture. Because, and one thing I have been so happy even in the midst of this pain to see, has been the the way so many people, especially the younger generation, have come together and just been like, actually, no, this is not right. I've seen a lot of conversations happening between um, grandparents and their kids where their grandparents come from a completely different generation, and they are not for this. And they're like, no, this is not right. And then you're having younger kids and be like, I can't talk to my grandparents anymore because they don't completely understand. And I think my grandparent might be racist. So you're seeing that shift in families. And then that's gone on a global scale of people like, no, this this does not work. Something definitely needs to change. And we can't go through this yet again because we've seen this happen time and time again. But something, I think it's, especially based on what we just went through with COVID and the world coming together, it was like, that was humanity coming together to try and do something. And now we are going back what it seems like 131 years back to slave days where this oppression is still there and something really needs to shift forward.
0: Yeah, I think the COVID thing is a really important thing you bring up because on the one hand, it meant a few things, right? On the one hand, it meant that we we went inside to protect each other, mm-hmm right? And we particularly went in t- inside to protect the most vulnerable people. Yeah. And so for me, there was something very beautiful in that move. As you say, the whole world comes together. We're all looking at this common thing, right? So that there's that thing. And we discover how fast the world can shift if it has to. Like you look at systemic issues, like I travel too much, I fly too much, I use too much carbon. Like this is just, and I look at it and I know that it's true. And I know it's a problem. And, you know, I buy a lot of carbon offsets to help me in some way, but actually this is a problem. And I, we talk about it and I've said, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Well, you know what? Now I don't fly anymore. Right. (laughs) Right. Like that stopped. And so, so the, the idea that things that we said six months ago, there's just nothing i can do about that like that's just too big how could we shift that thing right well now we see it shifts Mm. enough happens and it shifts and so i think for me that's that's the other part of the hope right it's the it's that we can as a human race, we can gather together to protect the vulnerable, to protect the people who need protection, to make the world better for them by giving up a little bit of our freedom for them. Oh, well, that's actually a pretty useful correlate, isn't it, to what needs to happen now? And then there's this idea that it can happen all at once. Like an amazing change can happen all at
1: once. And what would that look like. I know we've there's been a lot of research done on diversity and inclusion and what that looks like in boardrooms and families and all that. But from obviously your your standpoint, you're educated. I want to know what your take taking what you think that would actually look like in the world where that actually exists.
0: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but what I what I think I know is that we are The size of the world you live in is in part made up of the questions you ask yourself, Mm -hmm. right? You ask small questions, you sort of live in a small mental or emotional space, a space of few possibilities. And what I know is that the more diversity there is in a room, the more questions there are, the more possibilities there are, the more... Opportunities to create a thing that's not been created ever before. And like the scale of our problems as a human race is just massive, right? Like if we don't find a way to really expand and shift and transform our thinking, mm-hmm. our actions, our interactions, if we don't find that way in the next, how much time do we have? A decade, right? Mm-hmm on the on the human change scale past if if we don't do that i just don't see how we'll make it i just don't see how we'll make it and so however it happens we need each other
1: in your book um things simple habits you talked about three habits of mind and you just talked about right now asking different and better questions and then multiple perspectives or, or those like as well how do you get through to a leader of an organization around the kind of questions they need to be asking themselves as well as asking their, their wider team. If they are still living in that uncomfortableness and doing it over there, like you talked about.
0: I think that there's a pressure for change that builds up in us and around us, right? The thing that seems to lead to development is like some some pressure that happens in us where the ways we used to be no longer work in the current circumstances. Like there's something broken and it's so painful that we have to change who we are in order to make that pain go away. Cause, cause changing who we are, that sucks, right? Like that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, and we would pretty much rather change most things, <laughs> but that,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, but then there comes a moment when you can't change most things anymore and you have to, you have to change you. And I, I think this is what's happening for leaders and organizations all over the world is that they're discovering that the, that the world they were seeing was like one small version of the world that existed. And that there are all these other questions. There are all, all these other perspectives. There are all these other experiences that not only did they not have access to, but they didn't notice they didn't have access to, right? Like that's the thing. They weren't, they weren't saying, oh, I'm not going to take the perspective of a person of color right now. Like that, they, they didn't have that thought. They just didn't have any thought right? So they didn't even notice what they weren't seeing, which is what most of us, we don't notice what we don't see. And so the, as they begin to notice what they don't see, I think a pressure forms in them as it, as it is in me, right? Like you see it in me that says, I, I cannot be who I have been and we cannot be who we have been together. And We have to find another way. And if it's aligned with your values and the people I work with are so smart and their values are so superb, justice is aligned with everybody's values. I mean, if justice is aligned with your values, like, like why bother? I don't, I don't know those people. I don't work with those people, right? Like, I don't know who those people are, but if justice is aligned with your values, then there are some things you can't unsee. And this call for action that you made earlier, like, this is a more persistent, it's a more clear, it's a more significant necessity now. They say systems change slowly, 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 and then all at once. And I guess that's what, that's what I tell myself about the world right now. What do you think? What do you think it's going to look like?
1: It's, I think, like you, it's a, it's a hard one. When I, in my head, when it, what it looked like would be a board or companies that represent their demographic that they serve. Mm. So it would be, for example, um, one of the reasons why I went into what I do now was when I was working in corporate, I walked into my organization one day, did it for years, and I literally just looked around me. and I was like, there's no one who looks like me. There was 300 plus people on that floor. I can't keep on doing this. And have my son and my daughter, if they ever wanted to step into this same industry and have to go through what I've got gone through to get to where I'm at right now, it just can't happen. And something really needs to like shift. That's why it's there to want into literature culture and I'm working and that kind of things. And when I think about the future, I think about a future where That is not their reality, where they do go into organizations and there's every single person there and they just feel straight at home. They don't have have that barrier to deal with, where they are judged on their skills and their values and their experiences and what they bring to the table, not judged on their their color and that's seen as a barrier. Where they can buy a car and not have to worry about how many times am I going to get stuck. Or be walking down the street with their friends and be worrying about the police or walk into a store and be followed by a security guard which has been some of my experiences yeah it's those kind of things when i think about that's where a world we live in it'd be a world where even <laughs> recently the um i've was a politician was on tv a couple of weeks ago and asked him a question which was a very straightforward question which was how many black people in the cabinet for example and he was stuttering and stuttering and he said oh there is there are two. And he mentioned two Asian people because he went on the black on the BAM using the, the BAM banner. And I'm like, no, they're different people. <laughs> the answer was no. It's a world where you don't have to stutter about that. We can actually realize the steps. and be like, actually, there's none that's straightforward or there's one or two, whatever. But that's the world we live in where everyone's just straightforward. You don't need to tiptoe around the subject because it doesn't need to be tiptoed around. Mm. It's an experience for everyone. And that's that's kind of what I think about. And obviously, it's going to take a long time to get there. I completely understand that because it's, it wasn't built. This didn't come about just yesterday. It's been built over centuries. I understand that. But it starts with now and actually doing that that work right now. And that's why, that's the world I see. Doing the work right now so the future generations coming up behind us have a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. This hope. There's hope for our kids. Yeah. Mm hope for hope for a world where you could be born into and have a totally different experience. And we know this is possible. We know that people have been born into worlds and had different experiences than their parents. Yeah. This happened.
1: I was gonna ask you, your experience growing up in Washington, going to mostly black school, how was that for you?
0: Well, I mean when you're a kid it's what you know, right? Like, but it was, it was funny to, um, to come out and learn about white privilege and, um, you know, people to ask questions like how many, how many people of color were on your homecoming court in college? I mean, in high school, this is a, like, this is an American thing. Um, it was like, they're all black, right? Like, um, you yeah, how many pe- people of color were, you know, what kind of music did you listen to at your high school prom? Like, h- how likely were you to know the music versus somebody somebody of color? Yeah. Like, 100% <laughs> unless right? <laughs> so it was funny. It was just this different experience. And, and it's not in any way to suggest that there wasn't racism in, in high school, right? Like, or that I grew up in some kind of racism-free space. It's not that at all. Uh, but I, I think it gave me the experience, of, which which is rare for an American woman, of knowing what it's like to be a minority. In my elementary school, I went to a, in a D.C. public school, so I went to a, a, a Spanish English bilingual school, and um, I got there in fourth grade, and everybody could speak two languages but me. So I felt like a language minority, you know, growing up in the in the U.S., I had this experience of feeling stupid because I didn't know Spanish and feeling the shame of not being able to speak the common language, not being understood, able to understand the teachers or the books or, you know, like being out in the hall, reading a book, a, a slow book, a book for you know, much younger kids in Spanish. while The class was learning more advanced stuff in Spanish. So I had that experience. And then I had this experience of, you know, I think my school is, 20% white, something like that. I think I, it's got to change who I am, right? It's got to change how I see the world. So I didn't have that thing where the, that some like, people describe, like, oh, I went to college and I met a person for the first time. Like this, was, I can't remember. I didn't know people of different races. I like, can't remember. And I think part of it is just like the idea that there would be racism that was about color. The people would judge other people based on color. I knew a lot of black people. They were really different from each other. Right. I knew a lot of white people. They were really different from each other too. And some of them were nice and some of them were not nice. Right. Like it was high school. We were awful to each other. (laughs) There were, there were mean kids. There were scary kids. (laughs) There were great kids. There were brilliant dancers singers writers and just seems outrageous to me that we would create this divide this extraordinary divide between us it just seems like what a waste what an unbelievable waste
1: how as a mother do you talk to your kids about race
0: oh I talk about it all the time my daughter's just finished college uh she's a psychology major and she's way more current on white fragility and whiteness issues because she took a, this was one, one of her passions. And so I send her my piece when I, my pieces, when I write them, no mom, that's like such a white fragility thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> such a fragile white woman. Oh my God. You can't say that. So yeah, we talk about it all the time. Um, Yesterday, she said to me, You raised us to be really egalitarian, but I don't think we had enough conversations when we were little about racism and the injustice of it. She said, "I, I think you should have been more aggressive in this than you were. And, you know, she's probably right. Next generation, right? She's probably right. I was always, always, always wanting to give my kids the message that they needed to look at their privilege and under all kinds of privileges, every kind of privilege they had, they need to look at it and not think that's because I did something. That's because I earned it. Right. Like, like this idea of unearned privilege is so powerful for me. And, you know, there are privileges you earn for sure. But if you're a white middle-class kid, they're all coded in privileges you didn't earn, you know, have a doctorate from Harvard I earned that I worked super hard to do that there's white privilege over that thing right like there's yeah so my kids push me to have harder conversations that's
1: really good I love the the two-way feedback between both of you to be honest with your son daughter and you what you're learning from them but vice versa and you can learn from both different generations well that's that's really really good actually
0: we're trying how old are you kids
1: they're 13 and 11.
0: Let
1: off. Let off. So, yeah. So, um, my son gets a lot more. So, he's had a bit more experience with it as well. So things already happened to him. Um, my daughter's been, I think she's a little bit more naive mm-hmm. at 11. And been a bit a little bit more shielded as well with her upbringing. We're still having those kind of conversations, but... She doesn't completely get it just yet, but my son definitely does, and he he's expressed himself. He he wrote a song about it like last week, expressing how he's feeling about the whole thing. But it's also been us bring him up to be like, actually, this is this does not define who you are. That's not a barrier, we're not going to create a lifestyle where that's going to be an excuse. That's not how we've lived our lives and we've tried to be examples. But like, actually, that's not how we define ourselves. So we're going to keep on pressing on. So they've learned the other way throughout that. That's not a barrier to you. You're going to, yes, it's going to be harder for you, but that doesn't make a difference. Just because it's harder doesn't mean it's impossible. So you need to keep on pushing through that. So that's how we've even brought them up to balance. Yeah. Yeah, it's
0: just an, an extra layer of trickiness, right? As a parent just an extra layer of trickiness to everything. Yeah. I'd love to hear your son's song.
1: I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you when we finish. I'll send it to you. Yeah. And just before we we wrap up, I want to know what would you say to people who are still silent and still struggling with that? I don't know what to say, or I'm going to try and avoid this or i don't see color whatever excuse or statement they like to throw out there what would you say to them
0: I guess I want to first say, I, I see that too, right? Like I see, I see what it is to live in a world where you want it to be easier. You want it to, to go away if you don't look at it. I understand the charms of the that magical thinking. And I also understand the pain of looking at it. I understand when you start to unpack what it is to really look at whiteness. I think you have to go into dark places. You have to feel ashamed you have to feel grief. You have to feel culpable. And so those feelings are not fun, right? Like those are not fun. And, and I guess I want to say that every time a white person turns away from those feelings, that's white privilege because we can. And if we say we don't want it, we say we want a just world, then we have to notice when we're being unjust, that's, not, that's an unjust move. That is a, a move that says... I'm gonna use this thing I didn't earn and I'm gonna take the easy road because I can. And I'm gonna see that there are other people and they can't and I'm gonna take the easy road anyway. So I think we need to know like when we're being silent, we are ourselves in an unjust state and then look at ourselves about that, right? And I guess the last thing to say is I posted this thing on LinkedIn and I I had some advice that said, don't do this don't put yourself out. This is not your field. You don't have the expertise to do this. You don't have the, the backing to like, don't, don't do this. And I got three, I got three emails from black men. The first three things I got were from three black men. You were one of them. They all said some version of, thank you. You made my day a little bit better because I felt a, I felt a little bit seen. It felt like my experience was a little bit shared or noticed or cared for by you. And it made a difference to me. And I will cherish those three letters forever. So that's why. So we need to talk. We need to talk. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to be stupid. We're going to hear, no, I don't want to talk to you about it. That's okay. We don't want to be... F- forcing our way in we just want to be opening up our hearts opening up our mouths and seeing if we can make a difference that's everything I know how to do right now I'll probably know how more things to do later but today that's all I, know.
1: I can't think of a better way to finish this because <laughs> <laughs> that just captured it perfectly that that was really really good and I just want to say I appreciate having this conversation with you i appreciate the blog post that you put up and i appreciate the action steps and the work that you are actually doing both internally and personally but within your company and try to change the landscape of things going forward as well and opening things up really really that's the way forward that's the model forward for everyone to be honest all of us included So um, thank you for that. And it's been great talking to you.
0: Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for asking for it. Thank you.
1: I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Everyday Leadership. Make sure you like, you comment and subscribe to the episode. Tell your friend who can tell their friends. And I'll see you soon.